Thank you for listening in today to our Friday broadcast of Abiding in the Word with Dave Love, Senior Pastor of Calvary Castle Rock. Today, we'll continue our study in the book of 1 Samuel. So let's join Pastor Dave now. Soon your trials will be over. Welcome to Calvary Chapel Castle Rock. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 8. See what God has for us here. I like it from here on out. I mean, I like 1 Samuel, but it really takes off starting here in chapter 8 and 9 and Saul becoming king. And then 1 Samuel chapter 8. Let's read this in verse 1 now. It says, Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Now, as we get into this chapter, um, I want us to kind of remember back when um, it was God is the one that chose Moses to be the redeemer, the ones to lead uh, Israel out of Egypt into the promised land. And then after Moses, it was Joshua who was to succeed him. As a matter of fact, God is one that told Moses it was to be Joshua is the one that needed to be next. And then instead of uh, Joshua laying hands on somebody after him, instead he raised up elders whom he personally trained to serve God. And so they died, it says, in Joshua or in Judges, and a new generation rose up who did not know God is what it says there in Judges 2, verses 10 through 15. So what God did is that he raised up judges. He's the one that raised up leaders here and there to remind them to seek the Lord, and then God would use them to uh, bring about a great victory over their oppressors, and there was no one person who was in charge over Israel at that time. Uh, Israel instead was kind of a loose confederation of tribes that had been called to follow and worship God. It was expected that each tribe would seek the Lord through the priesthood. As the priesthood in every tribe would lead the people in doing the Lord's will and in worshiping the Lord. That is what God had put in place as they went into the promised land. Well, Israel's 12 tribes would then follow a very, very sad pattern. They would begin to forsake the Lord. They would serve foreign gods, the Baals, the Ashtoreths, and then oppression would come. God would send his judgment through another nation who would oppress them. Israel then would cry out, turn back to the Lord. God would then send a judge or a deliverer who would deliver Israel from their oppressor. And then they would be some time of faithfulness and peace. But then they would repeat this cycle again. And they'd prove themselves unfaithful. They'd forsake the Lord. Oppression would come. Uh, They'd cry out to God, send a judge. A deliverer would come. And then that time of faithfulness again. And then boom. They'd forsake the Lord again. And so they had this cycle that would repeat time and time again. And so with Samuel, he's going to be the last of the judges. The last of the deliverers of Israel. The people were in sin worshiping other idols when Samuel was coming up through the ranks. Samuel leads them back over 20 years. And we saw that in chapter 7 last week. 20 years, he he preaches on repentance. He teaches the word of God throughout the land. The people actually do repent. They follow. They worship God only. They put away the foreign idols in the land. 
God then brings them a great victory there at Aphek. As they all get together, as they're worshiping the Lord, they're having this great worship time, the Philistines think that they're gathering for war. And so the Philistines come to meet with them, and what do they do? They cry out to Samuel to say, don't cease from crying out to the Lord. Meaning, what is it that we're supposed to do next? Which is the proper response in the context of what we're about to go over in chapter 8. How was it that the people responded as they've repented, put away the foreign gods? And they were learning God's word all over again. And for 20 years they were learning. And they all come together to show that we've all learned the same lesson. That we're going to serve God and God only. And as we're there worshiping, all of a sudden the Philistines attack. Or they come to attack. And they do the right thing. Samuel, you led us this far. We know that you are the prophet of God, the judge of God, the priest of God. You're the closest one to God. So you tell us what we're supposed to do. And what does God do? He delivers a great victory. He's the one that causes confusion. He's the one that sends thunder. The Philistines freak out, and then God sends them in to take the spoil. And so now, we're about 30 or 40 years later here as we get into chapter 8, verse 1. We, we never read of Samuel having any sons you know, before this. We don't read of him being married, um, being on the circuit, being a circuit rider, and going over from one township to another for 20 years would make it probably difficult you know, to be married. But now he settles in a place called Ramah. And it's probably what most scholars believe it was probably there during those 30 years that he met someone, he got married, and he had sons. And the sons have to be at least 30 years old if they're going to be a judge. So we're talking about at least 30 years, probably somewhere between 30 and 40 years have transpired from chapter 7 before we get into Samuel chapter 8 verse 1. And so again it says, Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel, and so now his, his sons are judges, and, and many years have passed. In verse 2, the name of his firstborn was Joel, uh, or Joel. I don't know why I said Joel, it's Joel. And the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. So Samuel's sons are judges, and they're not very good judges, and it looks like they went off in a different uh, direction as well. Um, Taking bribes was a direct violation of God's word. God spoke to Moses in Deuteronomy 16, and he says, Moses, when you appoint judges, you got to make sure of this. And he says, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates, Deuteronomy 16, verse 18, which the Lord your God gives you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, nor take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. Now, nowhere in this account are we told that Samuel knew about the perversion of his sons. Nowhere does it say that. And it would seem that since God does not judge Samuel for this, he probably didn't know that this was going on. And we need to compare this to Eli and his sons. When you have Phineas and Hophni in 1 Samuel 2.22, 
Eli knew about their perversion. It says, now Eli was very old. He heard everything his sons did to all Israel. He heard everything. He knew everything. And how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. Know, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. Here's somebody that says you shouldn't do that, but then doesn't take any action to prohibit them from doing that. And so it rings hollow. And so because of that, the Lord sends a man of God, a prophet, to confront Eli for his lack of action in confronting this sin. And so he holds Eli accountable. And he tells Eli through this man of God, he says, why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering which I have commanded in my dwelling place? And honor your sons more than me. He tells him, he says, I will honor those who honor me. But if you honor anybody above me, that's not good. That's not good. And he cared more about, you know, his honor before his sons than he did about being honorable before the Lord and being obedient to to God. And so, again, Eli's held accountable. It's one of the reasons why this man of God says that uh, both your sons are going to die. Uh, on the same day, and we saw in chapter 6 that that's exactly what happened. Um, and so, and then it says here in verse 4 of 1 Samuel 8, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, because that's where he lives now, and said to him, Look, you are old. How do you like that to start off a conversation with? Hey, you're old, just so we can set the, you know, set it right there. Look, you're old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. This is not a humble request at all. This is a mandate. This is a command. This is what you're going to do for us. You're going to put a king over us. You're going to make us like all the other nations. Um, now, it's probably the conduct of Samuel's son that probably triggered this. There's, there's no doubt. But let's, let's be honest here. The background, the heart of the people of Israel has always been the same. They've always wanted to be like everyone else. Always. They've always wanted to be this way. And, and so they, they've always wanted a king to rule over them, to be like the other nations. We saw it in Judges chapter 8, verses 22 through 23. You might remember the story of Gideon. After Gideon's wonderful victory... Uh, The men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from this hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. And he puts it into context right there of what it is that they're looking for. They want a man. They want a hero among themselves that they can identify with, that they can see. They don't want to follow this invisible God anymore. They want something tangible, someone like themselves. And that's why Gideon said, no, I'm not going to rule over you, and neither is my son. The Lord is going to rule over you. That's who should be ruling in your hearts right now. You wouldn't have to have a deliverer like me come along if the people were worshiping God the way they were supposed to be worshiping God. You might recall soon thereafter, one of his concubine sons, Abimelech. In chapter 9 of Judges, it said, And all the men of Shechem gathered together at Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king. 
beside the terebinth tree at the pillar that was in Shechem. He was, uh, um, uh, he was a son of one of Gideon's concubines who was from Shechem. And so Abimelech went to his uncles in Shechem and his mother's brothers, and he said, Please speak in the hearing of all the men of Shechem, which is better for you that all 70 of the sons of Jerubbabel reign over you, or that one reign over you. Remember that I am your own flesh and bone. And his mother's brother spoke all these words, considering him in the hearing of the men of Shechem. And their heart was inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And so they gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal Berith, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless men, and they followed him. Then he went to his father's house at Ophrah, killed his brothers, the 70 sons of Jerubbabel, and on one stone, but Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left because he hid himself. And all the men of Shechem gathered together at Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king besides the terebinth tree at the pillar that was in Shechem. You know, technically, technically, if you were to ask the question, who was the first king of Israel? You might be able to make a case that's Abimelech. He's not the first king of Israel that God has put there. But it is interesting to me that it does say that they made him king. Whether everybody followed him or not, he was made king in the land. Okay, And that was what he tried to do. It didn't work off very well. It only lasted for about three years before he was killed. And the only reason I bring this up is because they've always had a desire for a king. And this isn't new here. It's been brewing for a long, long time. It's been brewing for a long time. So Samuel gets old. And then seeing his sons do not judge or walk like Samuel does, they approach Samuel, and their true heart is seen in the phrase, now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. And when you put it together with the next two verses, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me that I should reign over them. So here's the true heart behind it. The true heart behind that they want to have a king to judge like all the other nations. The heart behind that, because God doesn't lie, their heart behind there is that they are rejecting God. They don't want God to rule over them anymore. They do not want to have this invisible God any longer. They want to be like everyone else. It's very important that we see that. They want to be like other nations. Ever since the Jews entered into the promised land, they would quickly reject God in favor of the Baals and the other foreign gods of the Canaanites. Their desire for a king was just another idolatrous obsession. Israel was renouncing their covenant status with God, that they had pledged to him on Mount Sinai with Moses. That's exactly what they're doing here. They're renouncing that. From the very beginning of Israel's call into existence as a nation, her calling was to be distinct from the nation. Israel was to be different from all the nations around here on how they worshipped. They worshipped the true God. while everybody else was worshipping false gods. But the gods that everybody else was worshiping was very pleasant to the eyes, very pleasant to the senses, and brought immediate gratification to their flesh. 
Whereas worshiping God will never bring immediate gratification to your flesh, but will always bring total satisfaction. And I'm here to tell you that takes longer to do. Their everyday lives were to be in obedience with the covenant of Moses at Mount Sinai. So when the elders of Israel tell Samuel they want to be like other nations, they were saying they were tired of being Israel, is what they were saying. I'm tired of being Israel. Just so you understand, whenever you sin, whenever I go after a selfish desire, you know what I'm saying? I'm tired of being a son of God. That's exactly what I'm saying. I'm tired of being the son of, a, a son of God. I'm tired of being a child of God. I'm tired of my covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's why we go off and do what we do. We're no different than Israel. And here's the thing with Israel. They're saying they're being tired of being Israel, that they no longer want to be different from all the other nations. Israel's just saying what they would say many centuries later. We have no king but Caesar. It never changed. It never changed. And we've seen this with people, haven't we? We've seen this with probably friends, family members who profess Christ at one time. And they profess Christ quite a bit. They even lived a life for a while. But now they are so entrenched with the world that this is exactly what they would say. I have no king but Caesar. I just want to do what this world allows for me to do. And that's in each and every one of us, and we are no different than Israel. No different. And God's not surprised by what his people do. He's not at a loss to know what he should do next or anything like that. In Proverbs, uh, I'm sorry, in Psalm 33.10, it says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the people of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Now remember, they want a king for this reason, to be like the other nations. But from the very beginning, with Abraham, they were told that from this people group that God is forming through Abraham and his descendants, they were going to have kings. There was going to be a king who ruled over them. But they were going to rule over them in a different way and was going to rule alongside of them and was going to have a heart for the Lord. In Genesis 17, 6, Abraham, God says this to him, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I'll make nations of you and kings shall come from you. And then he goes on, he says, and I will bless her also and give a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall, she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be from her. God tells Jacob, also God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply a nation, and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. Speaking of his 12 sons. And then when he's prophesying over his son Judah, he tells him this, a scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Kings and kings are going to come from Judah. Moses prophesied of this as well about the future kings of Israel. Moses telling the people, because remember Moses couldn't go into the promised land. This is before 
they went into the promised land. He says, when you come to the land which the Lord your God has given you and possess it and dwell in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Wow, that's prophetic because that's exactly what's happening right now. And whether Moses knew it or not when he said that, that that was going to come to pass, or he was just saying that as a sweeping analogy of, uh, of the fact that, um, you know, that, that they will eventually have a king, but he says it exactly the way that they said that they wanted a king. I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. And by mentioning that, Moses does prophesy exactly the sin that they are going to fall, find themselves in at this point that we're in right here in 1 Samuel chapter 8. He goes on to say, Moses, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. And that's what's going to happen in chapter 9. God's going to choose for him a king. You want to be like the other nations? I'll give you a king who is like the other nations. And he's going to take from you just like those other nations and their kings take from their people. He's going to give them exactly what they want. And that is one of the worst judgments you could ever have from God. When you keep going, I want this, I want this, and Lord, come on, give it to me, give it to me. And he's going, I'll give it to you. And you're going to rue the day. And look what he says. This is the way the king is supposed to be. He says, but he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself. So a king was not supposed to have multiple wives. And being that the king set the example, that's also speaking about the people. They're not supposed to have multiple wives either. God never ever uh, said it was okay to have more than one wife. He allows all sorts of things to take place that he doesn't condone. I've never seen the the wisdom of having multiple wives because that means multiple mother-in-laws. Where's the wisdom in that again? Yeah. And then he goes on, Moses goes on and he says, and also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of, the, of this law in a book for one before the priests and the Levites. It, it's, there are those who think that, no, he, he had to write it. So he's copying the law. Because as you're seeing it, reading it, and as you're writing it down, and as you're rereading it to make sure you're writing it word for word, it does what? It penetrates your heart. There are those who would say, no, the, the king was literally supposed to do that. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. See, that's God's king. Yeah, you're going to have a king, but he's going to have a heart after me, and he's going to do things the right way. And guess what? He's not going to be lifted up above you. He's going to be there to lead alongside of you. That was God's idea. But it was Israel's request for a king that was their sin here. It was insisting that God give them a king now. The Lord had a king in mind for him. It was to be David, the son of Jesse, but it was not the Lord's timing yet. 
The elders should have gone to Samuel and say, hey, look. And, and believe me, they didn't have to say, hey, you're old. I mean, they could have left that out. Let nothing ever separate us. That wraps up this Friday edition of Abiding in the Word with Pastor Dave Love. Join us again on Monday as we continue our study in 1 Samuel. Fall is here, which means it's time for our annual Harvest Festival. On October 31st, Calvary Castle Rock will be hosting a wonderful free event for the whole family. The night will include carnival games, inflatables, high strikers, face painting, funnel cakes, food, and of course, lots of candy. So come on out and join us from 4 to 8 p.m. October 31st. We are located right off of I-25 and East Wolfensburger Road, directly behind Jack in the Box and the Shell Gas Station. If you'd like more information, please visit our website at calvarycr.com. That's calvarycr.com. Or you can call our church office at 303-663-2514. Thank you again for listening in today. And until our next time together, we want to encourage you to always be abiding in the Word of God.